Today's episode of The Metrospective is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmyUSA.org. Another edition of the Metrospective, episode number 73. We've named it for Yogi Berra, the manager of the uh, 73 Mets that made it on to the World Series before. Maybe an unfortunate decision that still uh, comes up uh, quite often. You can hear our analysis of it at the tail end of the last podcast. Uh, Tim, how are you? Everything okay? You know, Pete, the the other day I had uh, one of the weirdest sports dreams of my life. You know how, uh, you know, uh, people have written that uh, in a situation like this, your dreams become a little bit more lucid. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've always had very detailed dreams and often uh, they are about sports. Um, And so to foreground this, you must know I am not good at golf. Uh, I used to play a bit when I worked at a golf course in high school and college, but I've played once since I became a baseball writer in the last decade. Uh, But I dreamed the other day that I was in the Masters uh, and that I had made it to the final group on Sunday. Uh, And I was playing alongside Tiger Woods, uh, not playing particularly well, but still in the hunt. Uh, And I, uh, I ended up finishing third. But the thing that I remember most about this is like I returned home. And I was talking to my parents, and my dad just goes, how, how was your weekend? I said, I, did you not watch the Masters? I finished third. And he goes, oh, no, we, we didn't watch it this time. My dad is a big golf fan. Uh, he would always watch the Masters. And so I had to go to my parents' house, play the highlights for them uh, that CBS was airing for some reason. Uh, and while watching it, in the dream, mind you, I looked at it and said, well, this is unrealistic. Augusta National would never let me wear shorts in the Masters. Uh, so that's where I'm at, you know, mentally these days. So in- interpreting your dreams, uh, you're still screaming out for your father's approval. <laughs> Apparently, yes, that is that is what we're getting at. Who dreams about finishing third, too? I, exactly. I mean, it's one thing to lose, but to finish third, so specifically not in the winner's circle, that is a, an odd thing. It is it is amazing when you realize sometimes that your dream, like you know, the, the whole phrase, like in your dreams, it's like, nope, not even there, not even there, can I do something? Amazing. Well, I, I'll tell you, I haven't had lucid dreams quite like that yet, but I underwent a, a ritual that I think most people are going to face in the coming days and weeks. Uh, my wife decided, or I shouldn't say decided, my wife, I asked her to give me a haircut yesterday, so. It was a struggle, as I could tell when I'm sitting in the chair. Now, it's not like the barber shop where you could look in the mirror and kind of see what's going on. Kind of just going by feel here and trying to give her some instructions because she's never actually sat in a barber's chair before. So she has no idea of what is going on there. And I'm kind of, all right, so from here down, do it at like a one and then, you know, just buzz the top with the, the highest setting or whatever. And she got done with it. And she looked at me and she just laughed. <laughs> And it's that bad. It's like I have five different lengths of hair all over my head now in various places. I mean, it, it looks ridiculous. So I started talking to my buddy 
who's uh, been bald for many years, shaved his head, I don't know, 10 years ago and started asking for instructions on how to do it. I might be down to that point. And at the very least, I won't see anybody for a while, it would seem. So if it looks terrible, it would just be my little secret. And hopefully it would grow back in the not too distant future. But that's where I'm at on this, Tim. Are you going to keep the beard if you shave the head? Yes. Well, you got to even it out. If you don't have hair on the top, you got to have the beard. So I have not, I have not shaved, shaved like my full beard since early March. So it is, it's thick. It is luscious. It's coming in really well. I don't know what I want to do with it yet. I might go with the Mike Fires G beard at some point. <laughs> uh, if you remember that a few years ago, but uh, yeah, it, it the hair has become the biggest consideration, but eventually it just reached a point like, this is uncomfortable. Let me just buzz it. I'm not doing anything with all this salad on my head. Uh, so we we took care of that. The other thing I did this weekend was I, I woke up early on Sunday to take care of the baby, and I'm seeing Mark Carrig tweets about baseball. I'm like, what is going on here? And he shared the link of uh, the Chinese Professional Baseball League. They're playing in Taiwan. They have four teams in the league. So I'm like, oh, this is great. I turned it on. I, I think it was Rakuten was one of the teams. I couldn't even tell you, to be honest. But it was just good to have on the background as I'm you know, feeding the baby and, and things like that. And I'm following Twitter as well. And Karig is like his typical baseball jokes. I think <laughs> if you follow the Mets for long enough and, and you're active on Twitter, you know the, the setups to the punchlines. And the, the, it's the same thing. They just changes the names. And then the announcers start reading Karig's tweets on air as if they're the funniest things in the world. They'd never heard these jokes before. I was like, you got to be kidding me here. Cripes. <laughs> he didn't get in a cripes. It was, you know, somebody, uh, water covers two thirds of the earth and so-and-so covers the other. I mean, the same tweets I've been seeing for years and years and years. And now it's like the funniest thing in the world with a new audience. I mean, the, the shtick works for the guy. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> This game's been going on so long. When it started, those jokes were funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, the the, the two thirds of the, the the world's covered by water. The other third by Cheshuan Lin, which reminded me that I covered Cheshuan Lin for like three seconds in in Boston in 2012 when he made his major league cameo. I haven't watched any of those games yet. I've considered it, but they're they're on early. It's very uh, and uh, you know, I'm I'm not a morning person generally, uh, and these days there's really no. It's, there's not like a better reason to be waking up early. Uh, but I, d I looked at the four team names and decided to, to really go in on the, uh, the brother elephants. Because that's the, you know, any team that you can call the brother elephants, that's my team. That's a good name. That's a good name. It reminds me maybe the athletics, right? They, they use an elephant uh, to right. some degree. I don't know. The Mets, it's kind of hard to find synergy there. You know, they're not they're not the Tigers where there's like a Tiger team in every league. You can't really work that out the same way. As far as the Mets go, uh, one thing that that I've been doing is watching some of the classic games. I'm sure everybody's kind of been going back and, and doing this for various sports, whatever you're into. But uh, seeing some of the 2015 games. Uh, it was fun. I, I watched Wilmer Flores, the home run against the Nationals, all the emotions of that night and playing out the game. And, you know, it's bizarre. First of all, uh, was it Felipe Vasquez was Felipe Rivero at the time. And he's like a, a charged pedophile now. And, uh, you know, he's given up the home run to Flores with a different name. It's like a lot changed in a short period of time. And one thing that I've noticed, even going back to the games of 2015, if you're talking about the Mets or, or really just sports in general, games that don't feel like they were that long ago 
and you realize there is no player, executive, coach that's still with this franchise anymore, and you start realizing how quickly it all turns over. I mean, watching Jets games from 10 years ago in their playoff run, it's like there's nobody who is still around and affiliated with the Jets that's on the field or uh, makes an appearance on TV. It's amazing how quickly, you know, these careers turn around, these teams turn around that we root for over and over and over again. And, you know, there are very few uh, players, personnel that, you know, last more than, say, 10 years to become a fixture of a franchise. Yeah, I mean, in football, it's really jarring because so many, so few guys are on a team for even, you know, three or four years later. Like when the, the Giants and Patriots met in the Super Bowl in 2011, four years after they had previously, it was like six guys on the, on the Giants who had been on both teams. Out of 53, you would have thought there would have been some, some connective tissue there beyond like Eli Manning. Um, and then, you know, in baseball, like the Mets, you mentioned going back to 2015, what it's it's DeGrom, it's Syndergaard, it's Mats, it's it's guys who had just gotten there at that point who are still here now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, they, you know, I'm trying to think of anyone in the, the starting, not the, the position player side of things. Cespedes. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> someone who hasn't played and, and Conforto, I guess. Uh, but, he, yes. you know, I don't, he was up by the time of the Flores game. Yeah, he came up in July. He came uh, up like a week before that. And that yeah. Conforto being called up was the first move after they had the 3-4-5 of Campbell, Mayberry Jr. And, well, those guys were 3-4. And everyone lost their minds. So they called up Conforto that night. The next day, I believe, they made the trade for Aribe and Kelly Johnson. And then came the Flores-Wheeler non-trade for Carlos Gomez and eventually Ioannis Cespedes. And you had guys coming off the DL left and right. And it was the DL at the time. I'm getting that correct. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's just like the whole thing. The whole team changed in the span of a week and a half, or at least all the position players that year. But, yeah, it's just, I don't know. That's kind of what you have, right? Is to go back and kind of relive some of these games. Unfortunately, I'm Mets, Jets, Islanders, Knicks. I, I don't have a lot of, like, winning moments to go back and relive and you know this and that like i watched jets patriots 2010 the playoffs the big win but Mm -hmm. then i'm obligated to watch them lose in the championship game uh to the steelers so i i don't know i i guess i'd reach a point where i'd rewatch some of those games in 2015 as far as the run but i don't know if i could put myself through watching that world series over though i'm kind of curious to do it yeah it is you know, it, it's weird to me when, uh, like, the the NLCS that year, uh, which was so memorable. So, I mean, and so so fun to live through as a Mets fan. And you always say, I always think of that as this huge route where the Mets just crushed the Cubs four straight games. But really, like, the first three were reasonably close, uh, and the last one uh, was was more of the 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 route. Um, but you know, those those are games that I don't like. They don't feel as appealing to rewatch to me as. You know, that game five against L.A., which was so mm-hmm. it, it was probably the best game of that that run, maybe the best game the Mets played all decade. Uh, the, the Flores game, uh, that series in D.C. at the start of September where they really just mm-hmm. locked down the division. I would like, love those to rewatch out, that. Yeah, like the, the, those games stand out more to me than any of the NLCS games, which seems weird. Or even the, the one game in the World Series they won in game three because it wasn't a particularly tight game. Uh, that they're not like the blowouts aren't as fun to watch, I guess. I think I would watch game five of the World Series again, though, just to see peak Matt Harvey. Because I, I, maybe I, I don't know if I'd have the discipline to turn it off after eight innings, but 
and I certainly wouldn't want to watch the extra innings, but I, I think watching at least those nine innings, I mean, that was it. That was the last time you saw Matt Harvey dominate. That was the last time you saw that Matt Harvey. I mean, he's out of baseball at this point. We'll see if he's able to work his way back in. That And that's the defining game of the series for all the other moments. Uh, Cespedes' misplay in game one and Murphy's error and Familia here or there or whatever you want to point to. Um, you know, that game five is the one that has all the moments that stick with you five years later as a Mets fan. Yeah, and I remember even thinking, like, in the moment, I, w- I was at that game with my brother, uh, and as you're, you're wondering if he's going to come out for the ninth inning, uh, wondering, like, you know, what was, I, I wondered at the time, like, what the legacy of this game might, let's say he finishes off a shutout, they win game five, if they don't win the series, does this game still stand out? Like, does it lose so much luster because that if they come back to win the series, then certainly it's as legendary a performance as any in Mets history. Uh, But it's it's interesting the many different ways that game could have gone just from that point in the eighth inning uh, in terms of of what it meant and how it was remembered. And I don't think any of us thought this was the way it was going to be remembered as the last night of Matt Harvey being that kind of pitcher. So I'll give you my take from that night on that decision by Terry Collins. I thought Terry Collins had two good options and two winning options. He could have, A, sent Jairus Familia out there with a clean slate in that ninth inning. He could have, B, sent Matt Harvey out there in that ninth inning, nobody on, nobody out, but done it without, you know, riling him up and telling him he's taking him out. I feel like he did the one thing that you couldn't do. You had two really good options and Terry Collins in that situation. I I think Terry was a very good manager overall for the Mets, but in that moment, he did the the one thing you couldn't do, which was tell your starter you're taking him out, rile him up, throw him all off, and then, okay, change my mind, you're going in. And I just, that is the aspect of it that will drive me nuts as time goes on because, I again, I, I think there were two good options and Terry pulled like a wild card out that ended up hurting. It's it's so hard to quantify the right feel in that situation. I remember reading Dan, Dan Hayes at The Athletic did an oral history of Game 7 of the 91 World Series. Uh, you know, Twins, Braves, Smoltz versus Jack Morris. Mm-hmm. And I, I forget if it was after the 8th or the 9th where Tom Kelly did the same thing with Jack Morris and said, you know, great job. You, you've done your job, sit down. And Morris said, nah-uh, and, and basically got himself back into the game. Uh, and I, th- I think maybe it was Brian Harper, the, the catcher, was saying in the interview to Dan, you know, I, I sympathize so much with like what Terry Collins was trying to do with Matt Harvey a couple of years ago because it was the same situation. It just didn't work out the same way for them. Uh, well, Jack Morris, I mean, to be fair, I, he'd been around the block a few times, right? I mean, he had won a World Series with the Tigers six years earlier uh so uh, seven years earlier so it's kind of hard to be apples to apples with someone like Matt Harvey who's clearly emotional afterwards in terms of you know yelling at at Terry and Dan Worthen and then charged and sprinted out there on the mound now personally if you ask me at the time I would have stuck with Harvey I thought that he was uh, unbelievable that night and I would have kept him going I didn't have a problem with that it was more a matter of like you know, a no-hitter, you don't talk to the guy, right? You don't mess with him. And then this is the ultimate way of messing with the guy at a peak moment, a pressure moment, and then it's got to affect your your confidence, your psyche, all of it, right? If the manager tells you he doesn't believe in you, he's taking you out, and then all of a sudden changes his mind. 
See, my, my biggest issue with that ninth inning, if I, if I remember it correctly, right, it was a leadoff walk to Kane uh, and then yes. the Hosmer double. Uh, I think I would have given him one base runner and then I would have brought Familia in because mm-hmm. by the time Familia comes in, and that, that was a, a theme, if I had any issue with the way Collins managed that series, that, that came up a few times. I think, I think he stuck with Mats too long in game four, if I remember. I, I don't think I would have given Mats the sixth. Uh, and I think they probably should have kind of gotten Tyler Clippard out of the late game rotation from the bullpen uh, a little bit earlier in that series and not trusted him quite as much as they did. Because, um, you know, in a playoff series, you you are really riding the hot hand in terms of relievers. Uh, so that would have been my one critique. Because I remember when, when he walked Kane, it was kind of, okay, that's he, he got the chance and that was it. And I was surprised at the time that he got Hosmer too. Well, Ron Darling made this point in the days afterwards, and I interviewed Ron on my show on WOR then, uh, and he said, you know, that guys like Matt Harvey, they're they're not given the opportunity to close out games over the course of their careers in the regular season, and then all of a sudden you're in the World Series, you're trying to close it out, but you pitch the ninth inning a little bit differently. For instance, with a two-run lead, you you don't want to allow base runners, right? Like Lorenzo Kane can hit a solo home run off of you. It's not going to beat you, but you don't want to walk him. And Harvey had thrown a 3-2 slider. And to Darling, I think it makes sense. He's like, you don't throw that pitch in that spot. Challenge him with a fastball. Look, if he hits it, so be it. But he he can't cost you that much. But if you're going to throw a slider and pitch in that way and try to get the strikeout, that's not the time to do it. So that's... Yeah, another layer of all of it. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Once Harvey walks Kane, then you take him out, you go to the pen, and you go from there rather than giving him two. Especially if you didn't have the confidence to send him back out there in the first place. You would think you'd say to him, you get one batter on base and that's it. And then Terry Collins was kind of like, well, I wouldn't have made the decision if I wasn't going to give him two. And that, that never really made sense to me. Yeah, because I... I'm okay with the one base runner rule. <laughs> like, I, you know, I think yeah. we see managers do it a, a lot of the time. Uh, and I think pitchers understand it most of the time uh, in so much as they understand ever getting getting pulled out of a game. Uh, so, yeah, that, that would have been the, the way to go, I think, in, in that instance. So I, I, I think I've sufficiently relived this. I don't need to go back and watch it. I don't know. I, I would be interested. Maybe if I could had the discipline to turn it off after eight innings. But seeing Matt Harvey at that peak, I remember it was amazing. I mean, he had that whole stadium in the palm of his hands. And I, I guess the other aspect of it is it seemed like Matt Harvey, and maybe this seems ridiculous to say now, but at the time it wasn't, it felt like he was destined for this kind of moment. Like he was on this path to greatness and it was interrupted by the Tommy John surgery, but he was going to be that next franchise pitcher. Instead, it's become Jacob deGrom. But at the time, it felt like that manifest destiny kind of thing. Like, oh, this is the way it's supposed to go. He's supposed to have this moment and do it on this stage, you know, and have the whole stadium there. And really the... The fall from that moment has just been precipitous, and and maybe you know that's what sticks out more at this point as you you know look back on on Matt Harvey's career. Maybe it'll change as uh, we get a little further away from things. You can look at it differently. But so so we went back to to one moment in Mets history, and I I, I gave you my take. We did our takes on the 2015 World Series moment. Tim had an idea for a segment um, where we would do hot takes on aspects of Mets history. So I'll, I'll say that one is mine. 
And then where, where do you want to go, Tim? What, what was uh, a hot take that maybe you had when you were growing up or you look back on Mets history and say, you know what? Everyone had this wrong. You know, I, I think when we were doing our research for the podcast last week with Art Howe, uh, I was looking at like those 03 and 04 teams. And one thing that stuck out to me was that, uh, and this is this is the hot take that I think everyone disagrees with because of how his Mets career started, but Steve Traxel was good. <laughs> like, you know, when you give up 10 runs in your first start with a team, you're going to get off on the wrong foot. And, and Traxel had like a miserable first half of, of 2001 with the Mets. But in 2003, he won 16 games for a team that only won 66. Uh, like he was the best player on the team by virtue, you know, according to war wins above replacement. Uh, and really for outside of that first season with the Mets, you know, he pitched pretty well for them for several years in a row. Uh, you can get mad at him for getting hurt in the NLCS, uh, in 2006, uh, and then causing, you know, pitching poorly in game three of that series. And then you needed Oliver Perez to start game seven. Uh, but. I think for the most part, for some bad teams in there, Steve Traxel was, you know, every Mets fan just says, oh, Traxel, pitched so slow, was terrible. Uh, well, I he's think terrible he was... to watch. He wasn't fun to watch. <laughs> Who wanted to watch that, even if he was effective? That's what you remember as the years go on, like that you were just bored and turned the game off, so you didn't even see him get out. <laughs> His pace is more memorable than anything else. I don't know what his his repertoire was. I believe he threw a curveball. Steve Trax will throw a curveball, um, but uh, I think the you know I'm an I'm a bottom line guy. The end result was there. Okay. If it takes if it takes four hours to get there uh, for a, a 66 and 95 2003 Mets team, at least they're getting a win. Captain League average. I mean that's just the way I think of it. Like a number four starter, just. You know, there for a while. Well, I'm looking at his baseball reference page right now, and one thing that's jumping out at me, he pitched 16 years in the big leagues. I mean, that's yeah. that's a lot of time to get for a guy who I, I think of immediately as kind of like a middling starter. And, you know, he got over 200 innings a couple of years with the Mets in, in 33 starts. Like, he averaged deeper into the game than you think. I was looking at his 2001 season because – I was like, I remember it being a bad start, and he took a six ERA into the All-Star break. He'd given up like 13 homers in his first six or seven starts. Uh, but then in the second half, he went seven innings or more in like all but one start. He, he averaged well, like seven and a half innings well, for Traxel, 14 starts in the second half. Traxel went down to the minor leagues voluntarily. It was one of yeah. his years with the Mets. I assume it was probably that first one in 2001, and it turned things around for him. And it's something that comes up Often when there is a Mets pitcher or player struggling and it's a veteran guy who has the option to go down and they can refuse, which they often do. And it's brought up often on, on the broadcasts because Steve Traxel did take that step, did go down, and it did seem to right his ship and he came back. It was much better. So, you know, that's kind of like beyond the rain delay uh the human rain delay stuff with steve traxel like i think that's probably the story that gets told the most about him is the fact that he's willing to take the demotion did the right thing whatever made the adjustment down there came back and then was lights out or at least you know above average for him 
slightly above league average, which uh, I think people always overlook the value in that. You know, there's a lot of back-end starters that, that a, a fan will say, like, well, it can't be any worse. Uh, and, and take it from someone who's covered some bad pitching. Uh, it can always be worse uh, from a starting pitcher than, like, the four, four-and-a-half ERA, especially in that era that, that Traxel was pitching in. There you go. Steve tracks. I mean, we're working through it uh, on this uh, edition of the Metrospective. I'll throw uh, one question at you. You wrote about it this week. So best leadoff hitter in Mets history. Career, you got Jose Reyes, no doubt about it. I'm not going to argue against that. But if you're talking about one season, you kind of ended up in some interesting places. Like all of a sudden, 2003, Roger Cedeno is coming up. Uh, 99 Ricky Henderson, who I would not have thought of. And then somehow you, you tied in John Olerud to this whole thing. Well, I was trying to de- define what makes a leadoff hitter. So, you know, you can say the best season by a leadoff hitter overall, every at-bat that you're considering, it's, I think there's really three candidates for it. Um, it's Jose Reyes, I would say 2006. His season, he's got a couple that look kind of similar, but 06 I think is Reyes' best season. Uh, that's when he hit 19 home runs. That's when he stole. Uh, whew, I forget if that was 66 or 78, but it was it was a high number of bases at a good clip. Uh, you've got 99 Ricky Henderson when he had an on base percentage of 417, stole uh, 36 bases, uh, but got caught a fair amount. Stole it under a 75% clip. Uh, and then you've got uh, 96 Lance Johnson, which I think. Uh, has struck you know a lot of, a lot of fans love that season from Lance because it's kind of this this one and out season that he had with them because he got traded the next year he had a ton of triples so it was a very different style of of uh, leadoff hitter for them uh, so I think and those the Mets three are- had stunk for years so like having even a little bit of excitement there was very welcome. Right. You know, we talked about it last week. That that was like the Lance Johnson, Bernard Gilkey, Todd Hundley. Like this offense mm-hmm. has some good pieces to it year. Uh, but if you look at just the leading off the first inning, you know, who is best leading off the game? The, the real job of the leadoff hitter, you know, next three times you come to bat might be with two outs and no one on. Uh, Roger Cedeno in 2003, which is stunning to me because he was like his 2003 season was terrible uh, overall. Uh, but as a leadoff man, his on-base percentage was over 450 uh, to start games. Uh, the rest of the time, it was under 300. So he was, you know, if you want to say who was the best in the first inning leading off, it might be 2003 Roger Cedeno. And then Olerud, I was just like, who's the best leading off any inning? Uh, you know, if you if gun to your head, you need a run in this inning, you can pick anyone in Mets history. John Olerud had the best season leading off innings uh, in 1999. I think he led off an inning like 130 times and had an on-base percentage like at 530 or something like that. Uh, you'd certainly want to pinch run for him, uh, one of the slowest Mets ever. But in terms of, of just narrowing that split down to an absurd degree, uh, you can make a case that someone who never let off a major league game was the Mets' best leadoff hitter. How long did it take you to research this, Tim? I mean, th- this is the thing that stands out to me about your stories is you you find like the most ar- arcane ways of looking at things, digging into the numbers different ways, parsing it through. Like, How do you end up... Well, maybe a leadoff hitter is just leading off the inning, and John Olerud is the best leadoff hitter the Mets ever had. Uh, 
Well, I don't know if you know this, Pete. The baseball games haven't been going on lately, so I've got a little bit more time on my hands. Um, I get that. Uh, so, you know, it, it, uh, something like that baseball reference is so invaluable. And I've, I've but I like the way your brain that. works, you know, yeah, except for just... you finishing third in the Masters in your dreams. <laughs> uh, I, I do appreciate how you end up where you do for uh, our entertainment as readers. It's it's too basic a question otherwise, you know, the, every question should have a couple different bullet point ways of approaching it uh, to, to make it a bit more complex and, and think about how we actually want to define a term like leadoff hitter. Uh, but if I had to go, uh, if I'm picking one from entertainment value, I, I'd probably go with Lance Johnson. Yeah, I think Lance was the most entertaining season in 96. And Ricky Henderson jumps out to me because I just don't, recall him being that effective in a Mets uniform but an over 400 on base percentage a leadoff hitter is great but also I wasn't watching the game cognizant of on base percentage back then right so were you surprised that 99 Ricky Henderson ranked as well as he did when you you started sorting through different things well, I had this idea a couple of weeks ago uh, when uh, we're, when people were talking about like the best lineups in Mets history and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And I had looked up his numbers that year, and you know, I knew I remember from that season. By the end of the year, the, the Mets' top seven hitters all hit like I think Daryl Hamilton might have been hitting two ninety eight or something. You know, they were all hitting three very close to three hundred or above, and that included Henderson, who was at like three fifteen or so. So I knew he had a nice year, average wise. Uh, and I knew that at the time, watching it as a fan, but I didn't, I didn't grasp the impact that his walks had. That that this was a guy who walked this often uh, and was reaching base at a, a higher clip than you know Mike Piazza was that year, uh, and was more valuable than Piazza in that frame of reference. Uh, so I, you know, you you think about that team, and Henderson is certainly not who pops to you. It's it's Piazza and Olerud and Ventura and Alfonso. It's the four guys who followed him. But he was good at setting the table for them, and I, I think if he had just if he had stolen a little bit more efficiently, because I think it was thirty six of forty nine, uh, that would have been like he got thrown out a bit more than you expected Ricky Henderson to get thrown out, even at that age. So and that was I probably that was the what, difference. what my expectations were. Like Ricky Henderson is going to come in and steal eighty bases, but he was probably what close to, if not already forty at that point. Though he never really aged, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you didn't quite have the guy who could. Uh, steal to to that degree then. Uh, all right, uh, next episode will be our 74th. We're very excited for the next episode. We are, once again, going to delve back into Mets history and bring on a guest, uh, th- and this is the plan. Um, I would say it's an inner circle Met in the history of the New York Mets, like inner circle big time. Uh, so we are very excited. Someone that I haven't heard do an at-length interview in a while, so I think it'll be fun. So you definitely want to be tuned in, and we'll have that for you. It'll drop on Friday. Uh, but for Tim, it'll be our 74th episode. One player in Mets history has worn number 74, Chris Mazza. Uh, where do you want to go here? 1974, not a banner year in Mets history. Well, I think it's it's just so fitting that Chris Mazza is our inner circle Met guest for the <laughs> 74th episode right now. Uh, Way to give it away. It's not... It's not Chris Mazza, um, and, and the episode won't be named after him either. Uh, I do think, uh, you know, there's a lot of, it's tough to decide which season you want to hand to, to I've, got, I've got someone in mind. Um, should we I, delay I it which, for our guest? Do you think we should name it for our guest, and then we'll, we'll push this off an extra episode? I don't want to confuse anybody. 
Yeah, why, why don't we do that? Because it's it's a little... Uh, Our guest you know, is big no, enough no, that he's actually yeah. on the show that he can get the name of the uh, of the show. How about that? He's good, he's if, good enough to get that. I don't think we could tie him to 74, but we'll try to find a way over the course. Maybe he scored 74 runs one year, and we can uh, figure it out that way. But uh, we're excited, so uh, be sure to... You know, set your podcast alerts, whether it be with The Athletic or iTunes, wherever you listen, uh, and make sure to have it when it drops on Friday morning. But, Tim, always a pleasure going down memory lane, delving into your brain a little bit, finding out more about you, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll do it again soon. Adios, Pete.